This is Ader Nabetter. My name is Avi Singh. I'm here with Sajid Khan. What up, Sajid? What up, Avi? We are here with Chesa Boudin, San Francisco Deputy Public Defender and candidate for uh, the San Francisco uh, District Attorney. Chesa, Thanks welcome. so much for having me on, guys. Yeah. Welcome. Chesa, um, how long have you been a public defender for? Well, I'm honored to be your first uh, remote interview and uh, <laughs> love listening to your show. I've been a public defender since 2012. I mean, you've tried all, all kinds of different cases as a criminal defense attorney. Am I right about that? Yeah, I've done um, more than two dozen jury trials. Um, you know, obviously started off in misdemeanors, worked my way up. Um, and also, in addition to the regular work public defenders do, I did a lot of impact litigation work, mainly around money bail, but also a lot of work around immigrants' rights, um, ice holds, immigration, Padilla compliance, that kind of thing. You know, I think the way you and I met was through your work on money bail uh, reform through uh, your representation of uh, not just Mr. Humphrey, but many people who are incarcerated just because they don't have the money uh, to be not incarcerated. Uh, can you talk about how you got into that? It was really a personal experience I had that I think any public defender can relate to. You know, I, back in misdemeanors, was standing next to a client, you know, who I knew was factually innocent, who couldn't afford to pay bail. And the prosecutor said, our offer is, you know, credit for time served. Get out of jail today. And, you know, I said to my client, you shouldn't, you shouldn't take the deal. You didn't, you, you didn't do anything wrong. We're going to win your case at trial. And he said to me, I can't, I can't wait in jail 30 more days for my speedy trial right. You know, I can't do it. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my kids. I'm going to lose my house. And so he went ahead and pled guilty. It was really that experience. And it's, it's one, as I said, I think we can all relate to if you've ever been a public defender that made me think about how fundamentally inconsistent with any sense of equal justice putting a price tag on freedom is. It made me think about how critically uh, undermined the integrity of the justice system is by a process that de determines freedom based on wealth. And so I started trying to think outside the box about ways to challenge that status quo. And my first real foray was a federal lawsuit. We filed a, a case called Buffin, which is still ongoing, uh, but which after about four and a half years of litigation, we just won summary judgment on in 2019. Yeah, that's a really big decision. Uh, we have it in our bail our pretrial release uh, litigation in, in our motions where uh, a federal court ruled that the reliance on a bail schedule, which doesn't have anything to do with an individual circumstance, anything to do with their ability to pay, anything to do with the case or whether it's a mitigated, you know, moderate or aggravated case, that's the number we set bail at. We just look at a chart. We don't look at a person. That's right. And it, it's an equal protection violation and it's a due process violation. Um, and we, we made that argument in Buffin. You know, obviously, as you say, if you're using a random or an arbitrary rather than random uh, schedule uh, list of prices, it has nothing to do with the individual ability to pay, nothing to do with the specific facts of the case or ties to the community. But I got really frustrated at how long that case was taking to litigate. I mean, I filed it in 2015. I was really excited to have sort of a, a, my first foray into impact litigation. A year later, the city attorney who represents the sheriff uh, was required to file an answer to the complaint after all of the jurisdictional defenses had been shot down. And in the answer to the complaint, the, the city attorney on behalf of the sheriff says, the sheriff is required to enforce the law and she will, but this law is unconstitutional and she won't defend it. 
basically what they said. And I was ecstatic when I read that. Uh, I felt like surely change was was imminent. And here we are four years later and San Francisco and the rest of the state still relies on a secured money bail schedule. Uh, that frustration, uh, that ongoing delay in remedying a recognized conceded constitutional error that causes so many tens of thousands of people to languish behind bars when they're presumed innocent every day is part of what led me to begin the campaign that resulted in the Humphrey case, which was a separate kind of parallel uh, impact litigation campaign where the vehicle was, instead of a federal class action civil rights suit, as in Buffin, um, the Humphrey line of cases was uh, all filed in the form of individual habeas corpus writs. So in this area of money bail, Chase, you've like experimented in representing individual clients in their arraignments and fighting it out, experimented with taking those cases to appellate review in the appellate courts, the state Supreme Court, federal court, impact litigation against institutional actors. And you've secured these massive, in my opinion, like really significant, the work by your office, by you, by impact litigators associated. It's all been like this incredible thing to watch. I see you as uh, somebody who, and we haven't talked about like what made you a public defender, but like the, the heart of the, pu- you know, like the public defender, like True you know, through and through, right? And doing maximum litigation and getting these roadblocks that are institutional, or, you know, like the delay from 2015 to present, and who knows what's going to happen next with that case. So like, does that, you know, tell, tell us about this campaign, the shift or your thought process from going from a public defender's office, your personal uh, thought process to running to become a district attorney? Is it to knock down barriers that you've experienced? Is it to expedite change you've attempted to seek in terms of our justice system? Like, how does it connect, if at all? Yeah, no, it absolutely connects. And, you know, I, I became a public defender in large part because I wanted to fight to end mass incarceration because I wanted to be on the side of justice and because I'd grown up visiting my own parents in prison my earliest memories were, were going through prison gates and, and, and my dad is still incarcerated today. So for me, becoming a public defender was really about choosing which side of history I wanted to be on. And I, and I viewed mass incarceration as I still do as the civil rights issue of our generation. So when I went to law school and became a lawyer. The right side to be on was the public defender side. Over the last couple of years, there's been a national movement of progressive prosecutors who are running for and winning district attorneys races on platforms that are committed to holding police accountable, to reducing the prison and jail population, to ending money bail, uh, among many other things that I believe in that I've been fighting for. And I realized that as it's taken me four or five years and we still have a long way to go in the fight to end money bail, when I'm elected district attorney on day one, I can and will prohibit every single one of my line deputies from putting a price tag on freedom. It's just not how we're going to do business in San Francisco when I'm elected. And so seeing that path opened up by people like Larry Krasner and Rachel Rollins and others who are really redefining the role of the district attorney made me appreciate that there's actually a lot more that I can accomplish and a lot faster um, through that office than I can fighting one case at a time to put the justice back in the hall of justice. Aside from the money bail issue, which could be a like immediate change, what are the major other issues that you you think about other than money bail for like instant reforms or you know almost you know the day one day two type stuff? 
Yeah. So there's a lot of changes that we need to make. And, and, you know, one of the things about being a public defender is you see in a very personal way how broken the criminal justice system is, the ways in which it fails victims, the ways in which it fails the, the family members of people accused of crimes, and certainly the way it fails to rehabilitate or set up for any kind of success, <clears throat> the people who we represent as public defenders. So for me, on day one, I want to focus on the root causes of crime. I want to start prioritizing drug treatment, mental health treatment, and a restorative justice approach. And for me, that means every victim of every crime in San Francisco will have the right to participate in restorative justice if they choose. Um, another thing I want to do on day one is I want to eliminate racist gang enhancements and allegations. You know, I think if someone is in a criminal street gang and they commit a serious crime, they can be prosecuted for the serious crime. But the way that gang enhancements and allegations have been used historically and even currently in San Francisco uh, and so many other parts of the country is really aimed at criminalizing an entire culture and shoehorning into evidence in front of a jury a tremendous amount of irrelevant but highly prejudicial uh, social media and um, family relationships. And so that's another thing we're going to we're going to do right away is end uh, the use of racist gang enhancements and allegations. And another thing is, we're going to do uh, is start holding police accountable. Um, yeah. You know, it's really important that people have faith in the criminal justice system, that communities trust that law enforcement is there to serve and protect them. And unfortunately, when we have police who can lie, steal and kill with impunity, it sends a really powerful message, both to other police officers, that they shouldn't speak up against misconduct, and also to poor, mostly black and brown communities that are over-policed, that the police are really not necessarily there to help them. Um, that's got to change. And the way it changes is by holding people who violate the law accountable equally, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of what neighborhood they live in, and certainly regardless of who their employer is. Uh, Chesa, my, my question to you is, as a public defender that has seen all these inequities and these these uh, challenges that our clients uh, are up against uh, every day in, in the courthouses, one could say, and I would uh, submit that many of these issues are uh, based in long-standing law, uh, law that um, that allows for mandatory minimums, that allows for uh, life sentences for crimes that may not merit uh, those those punishments, things like that. So my question to you is. Why choose to run for DA of San Francisco as opposed to maybe running for a state assembly position or a uh, place in the legislature where you could work um, to change these these laws that that I would submit are kind of the backbone of our culture of mass incarceration? The state legislature plays a, a critically important role in solving some of these problems. You know, th there are things like you know three strikes sentencing provisions which the legislature and ultimately the voters have to take responsibility for ending. But that is a long and slow process. When I'm elected district attorney on day one, I can simply and I will simply decide we're not charging three strikes cases in San Francisco anymore. Yeah. We don't need to. It's draconian. It's inhumane. And it's ineffective from a, a, a rehabilitative standpoint. It doesn't keep us safer. It actually makes us less safe and it wastes resources. So there are things that we could fight for through the legislature, and we must continue to fight for them. But I'll be in a more powerful position as district attorney to make a real impact on people's lives, to lead the way and model the success of policies based on decarceration, and also to be a strong voice for these reforms in Sacramento. 
The California District Attorneys Association today is one of the most conservative reactionary lobby groups uh, in the state, particularly, obviously, on criminal justice. And so to have a voice of dissent within that association or a uh, alternative district attorneys association that is formed by progressive prosecutors who are looking to support meaningful reforms in Sacramento, I think is a really critical contribution that I can and will make. Hey, Chesa, you just used the term progressive prosecutor. And is that the term that you um, think is most applicable to your type of campaign or the movement? I've seen Larry Krasner use that also. I just wasn't sure, like, in kind of thinking about the movement, like what it stands for, because in some places it could mean just, you know, marijuana, low amounts of marijuana decriminalization. But you're talking about, I think, some of the, some significant structural changes in how our adversarial system operates on people. Um, do, do you have any other, like, when you think, when you know, you're talking to lots of people about what you're trying to accomplish, is that the term that you uh, kind of, Makes most sense. You know, it, it, it's a term that's become so popular that it's become watered down. And so I appreciate you honing in on what it means. Um, I think when Larry Krasner ran and it was unclear that he would be viable or that people like him would be viable, the term had a very particular meaning. Now that there's this national movement, actually pretty much everybody in my race, it's a four-way race, is calling themselves a progressive prosecutor. Um, because it's become, you know, it's the, sort of the term de jour. It's the term that people want to be associated with them so they can claim participation in this movement. Um, Tiffany Caban dealt with that in her election in Queens, and I think she very uh, critically distinguished herself from general abstract progressive values by saying she is a decarceral prosecutor, a prosecutor who is committed to ending mass incarceration. And that's something that I have uh, said and you know, will continue to say about myself and will continue to do once I'm elected. My entire life I've been fighting uh, in one way or another to end mass incarceration. And it's something that I in intend to do much more effectively and quickly uh, once I'm elected district attorney. Um, you know, what it means to be progressive is obviously a function of the the particular local you know, political circumstances. And so, in some jurisdictions, I think you can safely call yourself a progressive if you agree to stop prosecuting marijuana, for example, um, and a few other similar, relatively marginal uh, kinds of policies. San Francisco is a different town. San Francisco is a progressive town. San Francisco's current district attorney is far more progressive than almost any other prosecutor in the country. And so for us to get up um, you know, and say we are progressive prosecutors in San Francisco should have a different meaning. And that's why I'm coming out front and saying I'm committed to ending three strikes. I'm committed to closing juvenile hall because we shouldn't put kids in cages. I'm committed to using the power of the district attorney to enforce the law, not just against police, but also against ICE agents when they come into our courthouse and obstruct justice by kidnapping people who have future court dates or by uh, trafficking in, in humans and putting children at risk by uh, trafficking their parents to other jurisdictions. Those are the kinds of policies that I think um, a true progressive in a place like San Francisco will be advocating for, and they're policies that are ultimately going to make our communities more safe in the long term, which is why I'm standing up and challenging all of the other candidates in this race to join me in committing to a diversion program for primary caregiver parents, to uh, join me in committing to creating a wrongful conviction unit that can go back and look at c convictions uh, in years past, 
where uh, police lied or falsified evidence and people who are innocent are languishing in state prison. There's a number of things like that, which I think a true progressive would be happy to commit to. And unfortunately, some of the other people in this race against me who call themselves progressive have said they won't do any of those things. You've been, you mentioned your uh, family background, um, and then you've mentioned fighting against mass incarceration essentially your entire life. Can you give some insight to our listeners about your uh, family background, your childhood experience with the criminal justice system, and, and how it you know, influences you today? Well, you know, we talk about this concept of mass incarceration, and I think for a lot of people, especially folks who've never been impacted by or worked in the criminal justice system, mass incarceration is sort of abstract. It's 25% of the world's prison population. It's 2.2 million people behind bars. It's more African-Americans on correctional supervision than there were in slavery in 1860. It's really powerful, but abstract statistics. For me, mass incarceration is more personal because when I was in diapers, my parents left me at the babysitter. They went off that day and participated in an armored car robbery, which left three people dead, two police officers, one security guard. Now my parents weren't armed. They weren't even at the scene of the robbery. They were driving a getaway car, a switch car really. Um, And they were arrested and they were prosecuted under the felony murder law which meant um, they faced basically the same consequences as though they had personally pulled the trigger. My mother ended up serving a 22-year sentence. Um, My father is still incarcerated today. He served 37 years, and he may never get out. He has a 75-year minimum. My earliest memories as a result of that tragic crime are going to visit my parents, getting searched by prison and jail guards, going through metal detectors, waiting in line uh, to get processed in to prison visiting rooms where almost everybody was black and brown. Um, My earliest memories are trying to decide as a child whether to turn around and look back at my mother and father after a visit to wave goodbye one last time, or whether to try to keep my head up high and walk out and not show the horrific, heart-wrenching emotion that I was feeling every single time I had to say goodbye to them, knowing that they were going to walk back into the prison, get strip searched, and then go lie down in a cage that they called home. That's what mass incarceration means to me. And it's why, since I was in high school, I've spoken out against the evils of mass incarceration in favor of providing meaningful opportunities for children with incarcerated parents to build a relationship with their parents and meaningful opportunities for people who are in prison to come home to their communities and be set up to reintegrate successfully rather than recidivate which is the way our system is designed today. So I wanted to ask you a follow-up to that. You've, You've seen firsthand what prison, uh, how we incarcerate, um, how we incarcerate people, how we cage them, how we belittle them, how we dehumanize them through our prison system. And so, you know, forgive me if I'm going to challenge you a bit, but, uh, you know, we as public defenders, as you well know, we stand up in courtrooms and we advocate for our clients not to go to prison. Um, And it would be hard for me as a public defender to concede that any of my clients should go to prison as prisons are currently constituted even the most serious or violent offenders. I would concede, generally, that we have people in our communities that need to be incapacitated because they may be a risk to others and that there is some value to incarcerating certain people in our community, but not how we incarcerate them. It's hard for me to imagine being on the other side of it as a prosecutor within our current constructs and our framework of advocating for anyone to go to prison 
as as it's co currently constituted. So how do you reconcile that tension? As a as someone I perceive to be a true believer, public defender, how do you reconcile this tension of if you're elected as a DA that because of the laws that are on our books, your you and in turn your staff will be advocating for people to be sent to prison in in our current prison structure or framework. Yeah, so let me just take a step back and, and add a couple specific details to what I think underlies your question. I mean, when we talk about sending people to prison, yes, there's a deprivation of liberty, there's a separation from family, some of which we talked about a little bit uh, a few moments ago. But there's also a very real economic cost, right? Uh, around $75,000 a year per inmate in California prisons. Um, and then there's also a very real uh, social and, and um, um, you know, and human cost in the sense that we know a significant percentage of people who go to state prison or go to jail for that matter will be sexually assaulted while they're there. We know that a significant percentage of people who we choose as a society to lock up will um, try to commit suicide while they're incarcerated. We know that a significant percentage of them will be so traumatized by their experience that they'll actually be more likely to commit crime in the future, making all of us less safe as a result of that incarceration. And we know that the majority of people who cycle in and out of jail and prison every year are nonviolent offenders. So what, is, what does that mean when we as a society are prioritizing incarceration as our first response to any kind of deviant behavior? Um, where I maybe disagree a little bit with your the, the, the premise of your question is that I actually think the key role and function of the district attorney is to exercise discretion about which laws to enforce and how. And so I think that means when we look at, a, a, say, a new law like the mental health diversion law, um, which you know was passed and enacted about a year, maybe two years ago now, um, in many jurisdictions, the district attorney opposes every single request for a, a defendant to go into a mental health diversion program. Well, I believe that San Francisco and California as a whole will be safer when people who have mental health needs that lead to their arrest get treatment. And I think we'll be less safe when those people are cycling in and out of jail, which is tremendously destabilizing. So that's the kind of uh, vision and viewpoint that I bring to the, to the campaign and that I'll bring to the office of district attorney. Same thing with regard to families. There's a, a proposal, I think it's SB 394, to create a diversion program for primary caregiver parents. Well, that law may or may not uh, pass. It may or may not get funded. But regardless, as district attorney, I'm committed to creating a diversion program for primary caregiver parents so that they don't need to languish behind bars while their kids are vulnerable on the streets. Um, I think that sort of discretion in choosing um, to make prison and jail a last resort rather than a first resort and to channel resources to community-based treatment for mental illness and drug addiction is exactly the kind of discretion that I've always wished as a public defender I had to help my clients um, avoid getting incarcerated again in the future. And I, I think the, the dichotomy between public defenders and district attorneys is much sharper in a, uh, in a courthouse and in a district attorney's office that is seeking to send people to prison for as long as possible. That's falsely equating victims' rights with conviction rates. And that's simply not how I view the role of the district attorney, it's to seek justice. And as a public defender, I actually wanted a just outcome for my clients. I wanted one that would make sure they didn't come back into the system and that would give them the opportunity to take responsibility if they've caused harm 
without destroying the rest of their lives. And that's what restorative justice does. So that's why I'm committed to restorative justice and to reducing the jail population. Chesa, um, we, we asked a question. We put out a word that you were coming on on Twitter and asked for readers to send in questions. Uh, we uh, received a couple questions. Uh, one was, uh, how will you specifically reduce the trial penalty? And by that, uh, the difference between what a prosecutor offers if you take a deal versus you know, what the prosecutor requests if in the event that you are convicted after trial. You've talked about money bail. Uh, you've talked about family destabilization and separation. And uh, we, I, I would suggest that the plea bargaining process is one of the main areas that drives unjust outcomes. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about that? I'll make two points. One is overcharging or overbooking is a pervasive um, practice in district attorney's office across the country. And it's going to end when I'm district attorney. I do not believe in charging shoplifting as an Estes robbery, for example. Um, you know, I think you actually have to use physical force, not just get tackled, uh, if you're going to get charged with a robbery. We see that kind of overcharging and the racial uh, dynamics to it every single day in court. The, the second thing is that there's a California case called Lou Allen, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which prohibits judges from imposing a trial tax. It, it doesn't require that you be given the same pretrial offer, but it does recognize that it is unconstitutional to punish someone for exercising their rights. However, it's what happens all across the state in courthouses every day. And you know, I think from the judge's perspective and the prosecutor's perspective, if you get the same outcome after trial as you were offered before trial, why wouldn't everybody go to trial? And you know, the answer to that question is maybe they will, but if you're actually making fair deals and if you're charging cases in a way that reflects the actual underlying conduct, then far more people would be willing to take those deals in the first place. My view is really, you know, the, the goal is not to avoid trials or to coerce pleas. The goal is to resolve cases in a way that protects the public, that empowers victims to have the, the harm that was done to them healed by somebody, by some actor in this system, and to give people accused of crimes the opportunity where possible to make right whatever damage they've done. This idea of a trial tax, I think, is, is really problematic. And we see it happen all the time uh, in courthouses. And, and it's, you know, from my perspective, it's something that as a matter of policy, it's easy enough for me to say to, to, to my staff, you know, you're not allowed to seek a higher punishment um, than you were offering before the case went to trial. In those cases where the plea offer involves dismissal of a serious charge, and that serious charge results in a conviction at trial, it may be that the mandatory minimum under sentencing guidelines is higher than the pretrial offer. And that's a little bit more complicated to deal with as a matter of internal policy. But big picture, I'm absolutely committed to ending the practice of overcharging. I'm absolutely committed to never seeking a trial tax for someone who exercises their constitutional right. Another question that came in was, and I don't know what your thoughts are on this. Here's the question. Will you commit to a 50% reduction in incarceration in your first term? I assume that's pre-trial and post-trial at the county level. I don't assume that it includes prison or maybe it's of all the cases. Yeah. So my, my goal uh, and what I've committed to in writing uh, elsewhere already is to reduce the jail population by enough within my first year that we can safely close San Francisco's county jail number four. 
Now that's a smaller percentage than um, the question posited. It, it, we need to reduce the, the overall jail population by about 12%. Um, and I'm determined to do that within my first year. Once we've done that, we can safely close county jail number four. We don't need to build a replacement jail. Um, and I think we can then focus on further reductions in the jail population, which I am committed to. Uh, whether we can get to 50% um, over the course of my first term is, is, is a question that I don't know the answer to entirely. And part of the reason is because it's not all up to me. Um, a huge percentage of San Francisco County jail population is people who are booked into the jail with en routes to other counties uh, or who are booked into the jail pending rebooking decisions and then released. So 65% of people who cycle through the jail in San Francisco spend a week or less there. Uh, that's the population that's going to be in some ways the hardest for me to reduce because it's mostly driven by police and sheriff uh, arrest and booking decisions. This is related to another question we received, but I'll kind of reframe it a little bit uh, so it covers more. One thing that I think about when I hear about candidacies like yours, candidacies like Tiffany Caban's and Larry Krasner's is even if the adversarial system and even if the laws, the penal code sections stay on the books, you know, and they're not changed, if the the routine injustices that are completely unnecessary and unjustifiable were taken off of the table, uh, like you talked about the Estes robbery, uh, you know, that could direct us to be able to focus more on other things. So in the, that context, if you have police reports that your office is reviewing, and it just from reading the police report, it appears that there was a Fourth Amendment violation. We do that now. You know, as a public defender, you look at police reports and you evaluate them. You check it against body camera and other things, surveillance footage. You know, what's your thought process? Is it uh, sometimes people say, well, let's just put it all in front of a judge and have them decide, you know, because that's the the adjudication and adversarial process will shake this stuff out. You know, how do you, how do you react to that? You know, I, I think that's absolutely uh, inconsistent with the ethical obligation of the Office of District Attorney. I think if you see the police violating the law and obtaining evidence either, you know, in, in a way that violates the Fourth Amendment or uh, in a way that's based on, you know, racial prejudice uh, or some other kind of um, improper animus, you know, I think it's imperative that the district attorney step up and say, we are not going to put this kind of evidence in front of judges. We're not going to put this kind of case in front of juries. Um, you know, I think if you don't do that, what we see is all across the country, people lose faith in the integrity of the system. People don't trust police officers. They don't trust courts to reach fair outcomes. And, um, you know, people don't want to participate in that process. It's one of the reasons why it's so hard to get people in, uh, you know, poor black and brown neighborhoods to call the police or to cooperate with the police or to come testify in court. Um, my view is we are the first line of review and we are the first line of, uh, you know, of, um, in enforcing the law. And if the people who make arrests don't follow the law, then we can't use the evidence they obtain illegally to try to convict someone of a crime and deprive them of liberty. The last question from the Twitter request for questions was, um, it's it's a similar question, but so I'll, I'll contextualize it. In the case of Mr. Trulove, who was uh, prosecuted, uh, he was uh, exonerated and received a $13 million settlement from the city of San Francisco. So that there was a $13 million cost other than the human toll that it took on him to have, you know, suffered incarceration, conviction, trial, all that stuff. 
but in that instance, I, I think the reversal had to do in part with a uh, type of vouching or stating facts not in evidence by the prosecution about how a witness uh, had to risk great personal danger in order to you know come forward and the appellate court said something like that was made out of whole cloth you know you are a witness not just to what happens with our clients but what happens in courtrooms you know you know i'm sure you've made arguments that mistrial should be granted and that cases should be dismissed after verdict based on misconduct by players and not players by prosecutors um so you know what's what's your thought process about that you know because if you're running this big organization and you know, you're becoming, you're you're the you're the head of it, right? You're the you're setting the vision, uh, but the day-to-day operations are being carried out. How do you how do you think about that? The first thing is to have a zero po- zero tolerance policy for intentional uh, misconduct uh, in the office. And you know, it is absolutely essential to me that in the district attorney's office that I run, my staff not cheat or cut corners to secure convictions. And it's going to be clear to people that if that happens, and it's not inadvertent or accidental, but it's intentional, that you're not going to work in this office anymore. We simply don't want to have a culture where people lie, cheat, or steal, particularly when fundamental constitutional rights are at issue in order to secure convictions. And the second part of it is really building an office where we reshape the culture of, of, of the office. And I think you do that in a couple of ways. I mean, partly by hiring new, young idealistic, energetic, uh, passionate attorneys. But the other part is by evaluating those attorneys and promoting them and rewarding them, not based on conviction rates or length of sentence, the traditional metrics that are used in DA's offices, but rather based on things like recidivism rates. Are you coming up with creative sentencing plans to give this individual human being who you are prosecuting for a crime a structure and a support system and a Uh, mechanism of accountability that is actually going to change their behavior? Or are you simply racking up another conviction on their rap sheet and warehousing them until you dump them back on the street worse off than you found them? We need a culture where the priority is rehabilitation, reduction in recidivism rates, and transparency and integrity in the way we prosecute cases. And when we build that culture, I don't think we'll have to worry about the kinds of misconduct you described. Most of our audience is public defenders, I would say, and or aspiring public defenders. We're hoping, obviously, for that reach to grow. But for the public defenders, you being a public defender that's running for DA in San Francisco and speaking to an audience of public defenders, presumably here on the podcast, what would you uh, want to say to them and want you to know, want them to know about yourself or your campaign as a, as kind of your parting shot? I love you guys. I love the work you do. I love the work that I've done. I've been so proud and honored to work uh, in San Francisco as a public defender. I love my job. I love my clients. I love my colleagues. And I think, um, you know, this was a difficult decision for me to make uh, to run for district attorney because uh, I really believe in, in many ways that the public defender's office has been a home for me. I've learned a tremendous amount and I've made a big difference in, in my clients' lives. Um, not always winning, you know, sometimes taking hard losses, but, um, I think this is a a really unique moment. It's the first time in my lifetime when people all across the country, no matter what political party, recognize the need for fundamental reform. Um, And I think it's something that, you know, as public defenders, we've all said to each other and and to our clients, you know, if only we could get a fair deal and if only the, the, the person on the other side of this case cared about you and saw you as fully human. But when I win, we will. 
That's why I'm running, because I see every single person, whether they're a victim of a crime or whether they're someone accused of committing a crime, as fully human. And I recognize that they're more than their worst mistake, that they have hopes and dreams, that they weren't always treated fairly, that often what they've done is a result of the trauma they've suffered, and that we need to reinvent the way we approach holding people accountable when they commit harm. Where can people learn more about your campaign? My website is www.chaseboudin.com. That's C-H-E-S-A-B-O-U-D-I-N.com. And we're all over social media. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, And if you're in the Bay Area, come on up to one of our events. We've got volunteer events uh, almost every day. Chase, thanks so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you guys for your work and keep it up. Appreciate it. Thank you. Good luck. Thanks. Thanks Thanks for listening to Ader and a Better, and we will talk to you next time.